Chapter Fourteen of the Red Room by August Strindberg, translated by Ellie Schlesner, recording by William Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen, Absent. A hot afternoon was scorching the pavements of the provincial town Excheeping. The large vaults of the town hall were still deserted. Fir branches were scattered all over the floor, and it smelt of a funeral. The graduated liquor bottles stood on the shelves, having an afternoon nap, opposite the brandy bottles which wore the collars of their orders round their necks, and were on leave until the evening. The clock, which could never take a nap, stood against the wall like a tall peasant, whiling away the time by contemplating, apparently, a huge playbill, impaled on a clothes peg close by. The vault was very long and narrow. Both of the long walls were furnished with birchwood tables, jutting out from the wall, giving it the appearance of a stable, in which the four-legged tables represented the horses tied with their heads to the wall, and turning their hind quarters towards the room. At the present moment all of them were asleep. One of them lifted its hind leg a little off the ground, for the floor was very uneven. One could see that they were fast asleep, for the flies were calmly walking up and down their backs. The sixteen-year-old waiter, who was leaning against the tall clock close to the poster, was not asleep. He was incessantly waving his white apron at the flies, which had just finished their dinner in the kitchen and were now playing about the vaults. Every now and then he leaned back and put his ear to the chest of the clock, as if he were sounding it or wanting to find out what it had for dinner. He was soon to be enlightened. The tall creature gave a sob, and exactly four minutes later it sobbed again. A groaning and rumbling in its inside made the lad jump. Rattling terribly, it struck six times, after which it continued its silent work. The boy, too, began to work. He walked round his stable, grooming his horses with his apron and putting everything in order as if he were expecting visitors. On one of the tables, in the background from which a spectator could view the whole long room, he placed matches, a bottle of absinthe, and two glasses, a liqueur glass and a tumbler. Then he fetched the bottle of water from the pump and put it on the table by the side of the inflammables. When everything was ready, he paced up and down the room, occasionally striking quite unexpected attitudes, as if he were imitating somebody. Now he stood, with arms folded across his chest, his head bowed, staring fiercely at the faded paper on the old walls. Now he stood with legs crossed, the knuckles of his right hand touching the edge of the table, holding in his left a lorgnette, made of a piece of wire from a beer-bottle through which he sarcastically scanned the mouldings on the ceiling. The door flew open, and a man of thirty-five entered with assurance, as if he were coming into his own house. His beardless face had the sharply cut features, which are the result of much exercise of the facial muscles, characteristic of actors in one other class. Every muscle and ligament was plainly visible under the skin, with its bluish shadows on upper lip and chin. But the miserable wirework which set these fine tangents in motion was invisible, for he was not like a common piano which requires a pedal. A high, rather narrow forehead, with hollow temples, rose like a true Corinthian capital. Black, untidy locks of hair climbed round it like wild creepers from which small, straight snakes darted, trying to reach the sockets of his eyes, but ever failing to do so. In calm moments his large, dark eyes looked gentle and sad, but there were times when they blazed, 
and then the pupils looked like the muzzles of a revolver. He took a seat at the table which the boy had prepared and looked sadly at the water bottle. "'Why do you always give me a bottle of water, Gustav?' "'So that you won't be burned to death, sir.' "'What does it matter to you whether I am or not? Can I burn if I like?' "'Don't be a nihilist today, sir.' "'Nihilist? Who talked to you of nihilist? When did you hear that word? Are you mad, boy? Speak!' He rose to his feet and fired a few shots from his dark revolvers. Fear and consternation at the expression in the actor's face kept Gustav tongue-tied. "'Answer, boy! When did you hear this word?' "'Mr. Montana said it a few days ago when he came here from his church,' answered the boy timidly. "'Montanus, indeed,' said the Malakawi man, sitting down again. "'Montanus is my man. He has a large understanding. I say, Gustav, what's the name, I mean the nickname, by which these theatrical blackguards call me? Tell me, you needn't be afraid.' "'I'd rather not, sir. It's very ugly.' "'Why not, if you can please me by doing so?' Don't you think I could do with a little cheering up? Do I look so frightfully gay? Out with it. What do they say when they ask you whether I have been here? Don't they say, has... The devil? Ah, the devil. They hate me, don't they? Yes, they do. Good. But why? Have I done them any harm? No, they can't say that, sir. No, I don't think they can. But they say that you ruin people, sir. Ruin? Yes, they say that you ruin me, sir because I find there's nothing new in the world. Hmm. Hmm. I suppose you tell them that their jokes are stale. Yes, everything they say is stale. They are so stale themselves that they make me sick. Indeed. And don't you think that being a waiter is stale? Yes, I do. Life and death and everything is an old story. No, to be an actor would be something new. No, my friend, that is the stalest of all stale stories. But shut up now. I want to forget myself. He drank his absinthe and rested his head against the wall with its long, brown streak, the track on which the smoke of his cigar had ascended during the six long years he had been sitting there smoking. The rays of the sun fell through the window, passing through the sieve of the great aspens outside, whose light foliage, dancing in the evening breeze, threw a tremendous net on the long wall. The shadow of the melancholy man's head with its untidy locks of hair, fell on the lowest corner of the net and looked very much like a huge spider. Gustav had returned to the clock, where he sat plunged in nihilistic silence, watching the flies dancing round the hanging lamp. Gustav! came a voice from the spider's web. Yes, sir, was the prompt response from the clock. Are your parents still alive? No, sir. You know they aren't. Good for you. A long pause. Gustav? Yes, sir. Can you sleep at night? What do you mean, sir? answered Gustav, blushing. What I say? Of course I can. Why shouldn't I? Why do you want to be an actor? I don't know. I believe I should be happy. Aren't you happy now? I don't know. I don't think so. Has Mr. Runhelm been here again? No, sir, but he said he would come here to meet you about this time. A long pause. The door opened, and a shadow fell into the spider's net. It trembled, and the spider in the corner made a quick movement. "'Mr. Renhelm,' said the melancholy head. "'Mr. Flander.' "'Glad to meet you. You came here before?' "'Yes. I arrived this afternoon and called at once. You'll guess my purpose. I want to go on the stage.' "'Do you really? You amaze me. 
Amaze you? Yes, but why do you come to me first? Because I know that you are one of the finest actors, and because a mutual friend, Mr. Montanus, the sculptor, told me that you were in every way to be trusted. Did he? Well, what can I do for you? I want advice. Won't you sit down? If I may act as a host. I couldn't think of such a thing. Then, as my own guest, if you don't mind. As you like. You want advice? Hmm. Shall I give you my candid opinion? Yes, of course. Then listen to me. Take what I'm going to say seriously, and never forget that I said such and such a thing on such and such an evening. I'll be responsible for my words. Give me your candid opinion. I'm prepared for anything. Have you ordered your horses? No? Then do so and go home. Do you think me incapable of being an actor? By no means. I don't think anybody in all the world incapable of that. On the contrary, everybody has more or less talent for acting. Very well, then. Oh, the reality is so different from your dream. You're young, your blood flows quickly through your veins. A thousand pictures, bright and beautiful, like the pictures in a fairy tale, throng your brain. You want to bring them to the light, show them to the world, and in doing so experience a great joy. Isn't that so? Yes, yes, you're expressing my very thoughts. I only suppose quite a common case. I don't suspect bad motives behind everything, although I have a bad opinion of most things. Well, then, this desire of yours is so strong that you would rather suffer want, humiliate yourself, allow yourself to be sucked dry by vampires, lose your social reputation, become bankrupt, go to the dogs, then turn back. Am I right? Yes. How well you know me. I once knew a young man. I know him no longer. He is so changed. He was fifteen years old when he left the penitentiary, which every community keeps for the children who commit the outrageous crime of being born, and where the innocent little ones are made to atone for their parents' fall from grace. For what should otherwise become a society? Please remind me to keep to the subject. On leaving it, he went for five years to Uppsala, and read a terrible number of books. His brain was divided into six pigeonholes in which six kinds of information, dates, names, a whole warehouse full of ready-made opinions, conclusions, theories, ideas, and nonsense of every description were stored like a general cargo. This might have been allowed to pass, for there's plenty of room in a brain, but he was also supposed to accept foreign thoughts, rotten old thoughts, which others had chewed for a long time, and which they now vomited. It filled him with nausea, and he was twenty years old. He went on the stage. Look at my watch. Look at the second hand. It makes sixty little steps before a minute has passed. Sixty times sixty before it is an hour. Twenty-four times the number, and it is a day. Three hundred and sixty-five times, and it is only a year. Now imagine ten years. Did you ever wait for a friend outside his house? The first quarter of an hour passes like a flash. The second quarter? Oh, one doesn't mind waiting for a person one's fond of. The third quarter? He's not coming. The fourth? Hope and fear. The fifth? One goes away but hurries back. The sixth? Damn it all! I've wasted my time for nothing. The seventh? Having waited so long, I might just as well wait a little longer. The eighth? Raging and cursing. The ninth, one goes home, lies down on one's sofa, and feels as calm as if one were walking arm in arm with death. 
He waited for ten years. Ten years! Isn't my hair standing on end when I say ten years? Look at it. Ten years had passed before he was allowed to play a part. When he did, he had a tremendous success at once. But his ten wasted years had brought him to the verge of insanity. He was mad that it hadn't happened ten years before. And he was amazed to find that happiness, when at last he held it within his grasp, didn't make him happy. And so he was unhappy. But don't you think he required the ten years for the study of his art? How could he study it when he was never allowed to play? He was a laughing stock, the scum of the playbill. The management said he was no good. And whenever he tried to find an engagement at another theater, he was told that he had no repertoire. But why couldn't he be happy when his luck had turned? Do you think an immortal soul is content with happiness? But why speak about it? Your resolution is irrevocable. My advice is superfluous. There is but one teacher. Experience, and experience is as capricious or as calculating as a schoolmaster. Some of the pupils are always praised. Others are always beaten. You are born to be praised. Don't think I'm saying this because you belong to a good family. I'm sufficiently enlightened not to make that fact responsible for good or evil. In this case, it is a particularly negligible quantity, for on the stage a man stands or falls by his own merit. I hope you'll have an early success, so that you won't be enlightened too soon. I believe you deserve it. But have you no respect for your art, the greatest and most sublime of all arts? It's overrated like everything about which men write books. It's full of danger and can do much harm. A beautifully told lie can impress like a truth. It's like a mass meeting where the uncultured majority turns the scale. The more superficial, the better. The worse, the better. I don't mean to say that it is superfluous. That can't be your opinion. That is my opinion. But all the same, I may be mistaken. But have you really no respect for your art? For mine? Why should I have more respect for my art than for anybody else's? And yet you've played the greatest parts. You've played Shakespeare. You've played Hamlet. Have you never been touched in your inmost soul when speaking that tremendous monologue, to be or not to be? What do you mean by tremendous? Full of profound thought. Do explain yourself. Is it so full of profound thought to say, shall I take my life or not? I should do so if I knew what comes hereafter, and everybody else would do the same thing. But as we don't know, we don't take our lives. Is that so very profound? Not if expressed in those words. There you are. You surely contemplated suicide at one time or another, haven't you? Yes, I suppose most people have. And why didn't you do it? Because, like Hamlet, you hadn't the courage, not knowing what comes after. Were you very profound then? Of course I wasn't. Therefore, it's nothing but a banality. Or, expressed in one word, it is... What is it? Gustav? Stale! Came a voice from the clock, a voice which seemed to have waited for its cue. It's stale! But supposing the poet had given us an acceptable supposition of a future life that would have been something new. Is everything new excellent? asked Renhelm. Under the pressure of all the new ideas to which he had been listening, his courage was fast ebbing away. New ideas have one great merit. They are new. Try to think your own thoughts, and you will always find them new. Will you believe me when I say that I knew what you wanted before you walked in that door? and that I know what you are going to say next, seeing that we are discussing Shakespeare? You are a strange man. 
I can't help confessing that you're right in what you're saying, although I don't agree with you. What do you say to Anthony's speech over the body of Caesar? Isn't it remarkable? That's exactly what I was going to speak about. You seem to be able to read my thoughts. Exactly what I was telling you just now. And is it so wonderful, considering that all men think the same, or at any rate say the same thing? Well, what do you find in it, of any great depth? I can't explain in words. Don't you think it is a very commonplace piece of sarcastic oratory? One expresses exactly the reverse of one's meaning, and if the points are sharpened, they are bound to sting. But have you ever come across anything more beautiful than the dialogue between Juliet and Romeo after their wedding night? Ah, you mean, where he says, it is the nightingale and not the lark? What other passage could I mean? Doesn't everyone quote that? It is a wonderful poetical conception on which the effect depends. Do you think Shakespeare's greatness depends on poetical conceptions? Why do you break up everything I admire? Why do you take away my supports? I am throwing away your crutches so that you may learn to walk without them. But let me ask you to keep to the point. You are not asking. You are compelling me to do so. Then you should steer clear of me. Your parents are against your taking this step. Yes. How do you know? Parents always are. Why overrate my judgment? You should never exaggerate anything. Do you think we should be happier if we didn't? Happier? Hmm. Do you know anybody who is happy? Give me your own opinion, not the conventional one. No. If you don't believe anybody is happy, how can you postulate such a condition as being happier? Your parents are alive, then? It's a mistake to have parents. Why? What do you mean? Don't you think it unfair of an older generation to bring up a younger one in its antiquated inanities? Your parents expect gratitude from you, I suppose. And doesn't one owe it to one's parents? For what? For the fact that with the connivance of the law they have brought us into this world of misery? have half-starved us, beaten us, oppressed us, humiliated us, opposed all our wishes? Believe me, a revolution is needed. Two revolutions. Why don't you take some absinthe? Are you afraid of it? Look at the bottle. It's marked with the Geneva Cross. It heals those who have been wounded on the battlefield, friends and foes alike. It lulls all pain, blunts the keen edge of thought, blots out memories, stifles all the nobler emotions which beguile humanity into folly, and finally extinguishes the light of reason. Do you know what the light of reason is? First, it is a phrase. Secondly, it is a willow-the-wisp, one of those flames, you know, which play about spots, which decaying fish have engendered phosphoretted hydrogen. The light of reason is phosphoretted hydrogen engendered by the gray-brained substance. It is a strange thing. Everything good on this earth perishes and is forgotten. During my ten years touring and my apparent idleness, I have read through all the libraries one finds in small towns, and I find that all the twaddle and nonsense contained in the books is popular and constantly quoted, but the wisdom is neglected and pushed aside. Do remind me to keep to the point. The clock went through its diabolical tricks and thundered seven. The door was flung open and a man lurched noisily into the room. He was a man of about fifty, with a huge, heavy head, fixed between a pair of lumpy shoulders like a mortar on a gun carriage, with a permanent elevation of forty-five degrees, looking as if it were going to throw bombs at the stars. To judge from the face, the owner was capable of all possible crimes and impossible vices, but too great a coward to commit any. 
he immediately threw a bombshell at the melancholy man and harshly ordered a glass of grog made of rum in grammatical uncouth language and in the voice of a corporal this is the man who holds your fate in his hands whispered the melancholy man to runhelm this is the tragedian actor manager and my deadly foe renhelm could not suppress a shudder of disgust as he looked at the terrible individual who after having exchanged a look of hatred with philander now closed the passage of arms by repeated expectorations the door opened again and in glided the almost elegant figure of a middle-aged man with oily hair and a wax moustache he familiarly took his place by the side of the actor-manager who gave him his middle finger on which shone a ring with a large cornelian this is the editor of the conservative paper the defender of throne and altar he has the run of the theatre and tries to seduce all the girls on whom the actor-manager hasn't cast his eye he started his career as a government official but had to resign his post i'm ashamed to tell you why explained flander but i'm also ashamed to remain in the same room with these gentlemen and moreover i have asked a few friends here to-night to a little supper in celebration of my recent benefit if you care to spend the evening in bad company among the most unimportant actors two notorious ladies and an old blackguard you are welcome at eight renhelm hesitated a moment before he accepted the invitation the spider on the wall climbed through his net as if to examine it and disappeared the fly remained in its place a little longer the sun sank behind the cathedral the meshes of the net were undone as if they had never existed and the aspens outside the window shivered the great man and stage director raised his voice and shouted he had forgotten how to speak did you see the attack on me in the weekly don't take any notice of such piffle take no notice of it what the devil do you mean doesn't everybody read it of course the whole town does i should like to give him a horse-whipping the impertinent rascal calls me affected and exaggerated bribe him don't make a fuss bribe him haven't i tried it but these liberal journalists are damn queer if you are on friendly terms with them they'll give you a nice enough notice but they won't be bribed however poor they may be oh you don't go about it the right way you shouldn't do it openly you could send them presents which they can turn into cash or cash if you like but anonymously and never refer to it as i do in your case no old chap the trick doesn't work in their case i've tried it it's hell to reckon with people with opinions who do you think was the victim in the devil's clutches to change the subject that's nothing to do with me oh but i think it has gustav who was the gentleman with mr philander his name's renhelm he wants to go on the stage what do you say he wants to go on the stage he shouted the actor manager yes that's it replied gustav and of course act tragedy parts and be philander's protege and not come to me and take away my parts and honor us by playing here and i know nothing about the whole matter i i i'm sorry for him it's a pity bad prospects for him of course i shall patronize him i'll take him under my wing the strength of my wings may be felt even when i don't fly they have a way of pinching now and then he was a nice-looking lad smart lad beautiful as antinous what a pity he didn't come to me first i should have given him philander's parts every one of them oh 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 but it isn't too late yet ha let the devil corrupt him first he's still a little too fresh he really looked quite an innocent boy poor little chap i'll only say god help him 
the sound of the last sentence was drowned in the noise made by the grog drinkers of the whole town who were now beginning to arrive End of chapter fourteen